Amen. There's different uh, hymns in the first section. This section talk about uh, singing to the Lord. One of the Psalms says that every day we need to be uh, speaking of God's salvation. And uh, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 10, previous to that, a few other passages on uh, witnessing by non-experts. And we want to finish up this chapter today and finish up the series uh, looking at verses 40 through 42. Hear the word of God. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word, for the promises that your word gives to us. In ourselves, we are utterly unworthy, and we receive these only through the merits of Jesus Christ, and we thank you that uh, you bless us with blessing upon blessing. You add grace to grace. You shower love upon the love you have bestowed before, and we come to you to continue to adore you and to stand in awe of your word. We pray that as this word is preached, that it would uh, be doing its sanctifying work within us, even above and beyond that which I could anticipate. And I pray, Father, that we would truly glorify you as we go forth from this building, seeking to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story goes that a chorus girl in a chorus was extremely angry and upset and pouting and moody afterwards, and it kind of took the other chorus girls by uh, surprise, and one of them said, what's burning her? And another chorus girl said, well, uh, they only threw nine bouquets of roses up over the floodlights. And a third chorus girl said, well, that sounds pretty good, isn't it? Says, yeah, but she paid 10 people to throw the roses. <laughs> now, I tell that story because I think that gives the ugly picture that many people associate with all recognition and applause and praise and rewards. Uh, they think all of that is uh, self-serving. And because I'm going to be preaching <laughs> on rewards and recognition and honor from the Lord, I think we need to deal with that issue and try to figure out uh, what, are, what are these scriptures talking about because we don't have, want to have any false uh, ideas about it. Uh, we need to ask the question, is it ever biblical to be motivated by rewards? Some would say no, but I think it would be a huge mistake to think that all desire for reward or honor is unbiblical. For example, Jesus told us that we need to be laying up treasures in heaven, and he clearly was seeking to motivate people through that. Paul said that he strove for a crown that would not fade away. That was a good thing. Now, when he gets to heaven, will he be casting his crown, as it were, on the ground before Christ uh, and probably doing it over and over again? Uh, if it's not literally done, it certainly will be acknowledged that it was all of grace, yes. But still, he was motivated by whatever that crown symbolized there. Uh, the Scripture indicates that uh, we ought to desire God's commendation 
of well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is a good thing, according to the Scripture, to desire God's approval upon the things that we do. And we shouldn't just think that it's God's praise alone, because we're commanded to praise our children, to praise our wives. You know, in Proverbs 31, it says that uh, his children rise up, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. That's a good thing. Paul's epistles are strewn with references to praise for the people and recognition of the accomplishments that they had done. Uh, really, all throughout the Old and the New Testaments, the word reward and similar concepts are set forward over and over again as being motivations for God's people. God commands us to do it on earth. He certainly is going to do it in heaven. But that brings up a problem because immediately people recognize there is a lot of times when people pursue after recognition and rewards and things like that, that they do it in a very ugly way. It's self-serving. It's filled with pride. And so what's the difference between the Bible's promotion of rewards, recognition, honor, and things like that, and this chorus girl's ugly craving for exactly the same things? Well, I think you could say at the, the root, the simple answer is idolatry, because anything good can be turned into an idol, and it will be... Uh, bad for us, but let me outline for you several ways in which the rewards that the Bible lays out are quite different from the rewards that this uh, girl was looking for. First, the girl obviously had a heavy dose of pride, and yet the Bible indicates many times that this reward that it's speaking about is conferred upon the humble. It's very interesting how he does that. In fact, in Colossians 2 and verse 18, he says that those who want to deny rewards have a false humility. So there's the difference between pride and humility. Second difference can be seen in the difference between a bribe and an incentive. Now, in some people's minds, there's really no difference whatsoever, but there's a vast difference between the two. A bribe is a reward that's given to somebody to do something he doesn't want to do, otherwise would not do, and as soon as the bribe is removed, he will quit doing it. Now, I want you to look at verses 38 through 39. Can you think of any bribe that would be sufficient to get somebody to do what verses 38 through 39 call us to do, to die to self and to stop uh, you know, living uh, according uh, to self-interest? I can't think of any bribe that would be sufficient. See, a self-seeking person is not going to lay down his life and live exclusively for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if he did so, he'd no longer be self-seeking, would he? So a bribe simply motivates a self-seeking person to continue to be self-seeking by temporarily doing some good. In contrast, the rewards of the Bible come to those who deny themselves and who sacrifice themselves. So they're really quite different things. Here's a third contrast. These rewards are Christ-centered, they revolve around service, but they're tremendously satisfying because they make us realize that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. They appeal to a person who has vision, who has purpose, who has goals in life, whereas this chorus girl was very present-oriented, was not future-oriented at all, and uh, was very self-serving in the way she was going about it. Fourth, biblical rewards, recognition and honor, demonstrate a mutually beneficial system of love and support. 
Okay, love and respect. This chorus girl, 100%, a self-absorbed. Now, there's a lot of illustrations you could use to, to think about this. Think of a marriage. When two people get married, are there rewards, as it were? Are there perks? Are there benefits to getting married? And I think we'd have to say, yes, absolutely, there are. Now, can a person enter into marriage and treat it idolatrously where he is so self-seeking that really, over time, it ruins the marriage? You've seen that, haven't you? Because all he's concerned about is the rewards. But there is another kind of a person who enters into the marriage and what he's doing is he's seeking the other person's interests ahead of his own. And the scripture indicates when you take that kind of an attitude, you are going to be rewarded in that marriage and that marriage is going to be so much more fulfilling to you than the person who was seeking for the reward in the first place, seeking after uh, these things. 1 Corinthians 7 says that the married woman should seek to please her husband and the married man should seek to please um, her, his wife. <laughs> Getting tongue-tied here. And in the process of doing though, so, there is great reward, great reward. So that would be an example of a person who's rewarded by being not self-seeking. Let me give you another illustration here. The difference between Spencerian, so-called free market economics, and biblical free market economics. Now, Spencer applied evolution to just about every area of life, and uh, when it came to free market economics, he said that uh, we need to really be thinking of this as flowing from the survival of the fittest, and it's going to be a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of a world, and they threw ethics to the wind. What they were seeking to achieve is benefiting themselves at the expense of other people. Now, they... Uh, realized they could not do that completely without force. And what's the biggest force that they can uh, bring to their attention? It would be the civil government. And so they were always in bed with the civil government trying to get the civil government to give them special favors and grants and monopolies and things like that. So it really wasn't free market economics. It was fascism, but they call it uh, free market economics. And, um, and in contrast, in the biblical free market, Everybody benefits by serving well. The per people that serve the most are going to benefit the most. Christ said, he who wants to be the greatest, he should be the servant of all. Okay, so the better you serve, the more uh, benefit that you're going to have. Now, in real life uh, situations, the government always complicates things when they get involved and they ruin uh, uh, the, the servant business type of a market, which always flourishes in a free market. And so they complicate things, but in a true free market, who is the business that's going to benefit the most? It's the, it's the business that's always looking to the interests of its customers, seeking to bend over backwards to please them. I mean, who's the salesperson that you like to buy things from? It's the salesperson who uh, wants to sell you what you're interested in, rather than shoving things down your throat, right? And so really, I think this is a, a, a very a legitimate uh, example of, of this biblical reward concept. To fight against recognition, reward, and benefits from service, I think is a form of socialism. And we'll be tracing this out a little bit further in the future. And I'm going to be hitting this, uh, this beginning part, this introduction, really hard because we have been so influenced by our culture, I think a lot of people don't realize the degree to which they are socialistic in their thinking. Now, I, th I see the key 
uh, to seeing that verses 40 through 42 do not appeal to a person who's self-seeking, I see the key in verse 39. Take a look at that transition verse. He who finds his life will lose it. So he's talking here about a person who is self-seeking, who's trying to find or achieve his life pursuits by avoiding pain, avoiding sacrifice, avoiding servanthood, <laughs> you know, avoiding the battle, avoiding all of the costs that we have been looking at in chapter 10. And what does the scripture say happens? And in real life, you see this happens. He ends up being empty. He's been pursuing it all his life, and when he thinks he's achieved it, he feels like he is empty. He's done nothing significant in time or in eternity. Now, he goes on to say, first guy loses his life, but he says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When you relinquish your rights, you embrace the costs of discipleship that Christ lays out in this chapter. Far from being a loser, you're an incredible gainer. Okay, You gain a sense of satisfaction and joy and meaning in life. Uh, you gain all kinds of benefits and rewards and the power of the Holy Spirit. You even gain recognition from men where they say, I want that. Just read Romans 11 sometime and, and ask yourself, why does the God use the word jealous? God wants you to have so many benefits, so many blessings, so many rewards, even in time that pagans can look on and they're jealous of the gospel in your life. They're jealous of all the blessings that you have. And so this is not something that God wants us uh, to completely uh, get rid of or to, uh, or to avoid. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Basically, in these verses, he is saying, it's worth all the costs that you're going to be facing. Now, let's take a look then through some of these perks that the Lord holds out to us. The first perk is union with Jesus. Now, I think it'd be a tremendous honor if uh, Jesus went out witnessing with you and you were just standing beside him and uh, he's going door to door with you. That would be a tremendous honor. I think probably every one of you would, in a heartbeat, you would uh, take the opportunity to go with Jesus door to door and uh, have him coaching you on that. Well, these verses say you've got something far, far better than that. He is indwelling you. He is, as we saw last week, witnessing through you. He is empowering you. And because of his union with you, there's all kinds of benefits that are going to flow into your life. He's going to back you up more than the United States backs up its ambassadors. Take a look at verse 40. He says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So when you're a witness, you're not just any ordinary witness. You are a representative of Christ. Jesus is in you. He is witnessing through you, and through your union with Jesus, you have a union with other believers, you have a union with the Father. And the reward of embracing the costs of this chapter is you don't have to go through the fire alone, you don't have to go through the costs alone. Jesus is going to go through those with you. He is going to uh, empower you all through that witnessing opportunity, and we're uh, going to try to uh, show some of the applications of this. In Jewish thought, the greater the person that you serve, the greater your reward. So the Jewish rabbi said that if you serve a rabbi, you're going to get a greater reward than if you served a righteous man. And if you serve a righteous man, you're going to get a greater reward than if you served a little child. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He cuts through all of that by saying, the person who was anyone who was united to me is great precisely because of that union. So your wife is great because Jesus is in her. 
Your child is great because Jesus is in her. And no matter uh, what age that that uh, person may be, as that person is witnessing, as he is seeking to serve in various ways, God says there is a greatness because of the presence of Christ in that person's life. So, uh, in Matthew 25, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Okay, the least of these my brethren would be little toddlers, and it's not just any toddler, but it's those who are his brethren, those who are in the covenant. He says, you're doing it to me. Now, once you grasp this in your mind, it's an incredibly life-transforming thought. When I give so much as a cup of cold water to you in our hospitality, I am ministering to the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm mean to you and I hurt you, I'm hurting Jesus Christ. I'm being mean to Jesus Christ. That's how much Christ identifies with his people. Matthew 24 uh, went on to condemn people for failing to feed him, for failing to visit him in jail. Uh, when Saul persecuted Christ, actually when he was persecuting Christians, uh, Christ met him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so persecuting of Christians was treated by Jesus as persecuting him. That's because of his mystical union uh, with all of his people. So when you go through a rough day, Christ is right there with you. And the people who are hurting you are hurting Christ. And what this does is it motivates us to receive all whom Christ has received because we desire to re enter into the reward that those people that Christ is united to receive. You see, it's not just a situation where we need to be received and those who receive us, because we're going out witnessing according to this chapter, those who receive us are receiving Christ, but the other reverse is true as well. When we receive the brethren or the prophet or the righteous man, uh, when we receive them, we are receiving Christ and profit through that. So how do you treat brethren? How do you treat toddlers? Verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones, these little ones, he must have had little ones that were around him, uh, which is one of many scriptures, by the way, which indicates he didn't send the little ones off to children's church. Uh, he valued the little ones in their midst. But um, uh, he, he was saying, whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now we'll look at the implications of losing a reward later. And I, I won't totally get into the implication of young ones who are witnessing. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But when you make your beds or the beds of your covenant children, when you wipe up the spilled milk, when you change the diapers, he says you are serving Christ directly. Now, to me, this is a huge encouragement. When I can bring it to the top of my consciousness, when I'm ministering to somebody, Lord, thank you that you've let me minister to you. It, it gives great joy uh, to the ministry. Now, let's give another implication uh, to this, dig a little bit deeper. This union with Christ also assures us of the Father's love and of our security. And why would I say that? Well, it's just logical implication of this because if when I receive one of you, I'm receiving Christ, and in the process of receiving Christ, I'm receiving the Father, well, the reverse is also true. When the Father receives the Son, 
He is receiving everyone who is in the Son. When the Father loves the Son, He is loving those who are in the Son. Now just think of this for a moment. How could God love any of us uh, when the Scripture clearly says, a number of places, Psalm 5, 5 and other places, He hates all workers of iniquity. They're an abomination to Him. They're a stench in His sight. How could He love any of us? Well, Romans 8 tells us, Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where God's love resides. It resides in Christ. And so when God loves the Son with an unbreakable love, He loves us who are united with the Son with an unbreakable love as well. Now this is to uh, an incredible motivation. The love of the Father motivated Christ hugely in His ministry. And the more we can be conscious of the Father's love for us, the more we will be motivated as well. Now here's what really blows me away. This also means that He loves us the Father loves us with the same intensity that He loves the Son, and the Son loves us with the same intensity that the Father loves Him. Now, if your heart has ever grown cold to the Lord, this ought to break your heart and say, Lord, shed abroad in my heart love for you, that you could love me, a wretched sinner, in this fashion is an incredible thing. Now, I'm going to give you some scripture because I wouldn't dare to make this statement if the scripture didn't so clearly say it. But Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's John 15, 9. And the word as in the beginning, the Greek word is kathos. It's just like the Father loved me, so I have loved you. So the same love that the Father had for the Son is the love that the Son has for us. This is incredible. I mean, there could be no greater army than to serve, a greater honor than to serve in the army of a general who loves you personally as much as his Father loved him. But what about the Father's love? Christ prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 23. You sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. I mean, this is almost as mind-blowing as the fear of God that we looked at last week. The fear of God, great motivation in witnessing, but this is the love of God, which Paul says should drive us, should motivate us. It compels us uh, to, to, to witness. When you really begin thinking through what it means to be united to Christ, then some of what we've been looking at of the last three weeks really begins to, to make sense. Like, Verses 26 through 31. Remember he said, don't be fearful of witnessing because the Father values you. How much does the Father value you? Well, he loves you with the same love that he loved the Son. Okay? Yeah, you may not think much of yourself, but God thinks very much of you because of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you're convinced of this, then you have every reason for confidence, boldness, comfort, and security when you're going out and witnessing. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I keep emphasizing you guys have got to engage in these various biblical exercises for developing communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because the more you can bring that to your consciousness, the more you're going to be motivated in your day-by-day -day life and Satan's not going to be able to take the wind out of your sails. Okay, so we looked at the perks involved in our union with Christ. Now what about the reward for service that he's talking about? Isn't union with Christ all the reward that we would want? Well, yes, it is. I mean, it's a wonderful reward. Uh, some people think 
that that's all the reward that we get, and I would be perfectly satisfied with that. I mean, we deserve hell, right? So anything the Lord gives to us is wonderful, but this goes beyond that. Verse 41 speaks of a prophet's reward and a righteous man's reward. Verse 42 speaks of a disciple's reward, and other passages speak of a reward that evangelists get or that a martyr gets. You know, they're going to have some special kind of reward that nobody else is going to be, be, be getting. Now, some people say there is no more reward than simply heaven. And they say that a prophet's reward is a euphemism for heaven. And these socialists of grace, and I do use that term advisedly. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited or anything like that. I'm trying to be as clear as I can on what's going on with, the, with these concepts here. Those socialists of grace think that grace is not grace unless everybody has the same amount of grace and therefore everybody has the same amount of reward. But that's ridiculous when you think about it because there is no way that we are equal on every level. You're not equal bodily. You're not equal financially. You're not equal socially. You're not equal emotionally. There's so many different ways in which we're not equal. Why would we have to say reward has to be uh, equal? God is sovereign. He can uh, administer his rewards however that, that he chooses. Now let me just try to illustrate why this makes a difference. Founding fathers in America very correctly observed that the French Revolution was a disaster because when it mandated equality, it destroyed liberty. They said that equality is incompatible with liberty. Always has been, always will be. Whenever a state tries to mandate or impose equality, automatically it's going to be robbing people of their liberties. There is no other way uh, of achieving this. The only equality that we have is equal access to justice, and that's what the Founding Fathers were very concerned about, everybody be equally treated before the law, and equal access before God. So... Uh, those are the areas that we're equal on. But the socialist dream of equality destroys motivation to excel. Why would I spend, you know, a lifetime or maybe 20 years developing some superb technology only to have the state take it away and I won't, re you know, get any, reap any of the benefits of that, that, that uh, technology? Most technology in communist countries has been stolen from the West. Why? Because they can't motivate their people to engage in that. And the times that they do, they're borrowing free market principles. They give these guys rewards for coming up with these, uh, they, these technologies. Well, in the same vein, when I try to work my tail off, like Paul tried to work his tail off, and then I realize that I get the same rewards that a person who's done absolutely nothing in life gets, it would be hugely demotivating to Christian service. Now, I'm still going to be motivated just by what we looked at, the vision that God cast before us previously, but really this is a huge motivation, and we need to realize this to be a form of socialism. Individual reward, tremendous motivator. But if the only reward is heaven, then everybody comes out the same no matter what your actions on earth. And what I want to do is I want to give you just a few proofs that what we're doing on earth makes a huge difference for what we're going to be having and what we're going to be able to do throughout all of eternity. First, he uses the term rewards, and I think that ought to settle the question right there. There's huge debate on this, by the way. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm hammering this rather hard. If you look up the meaning of the word rewards, I don't see how you can get around this question. Um, these people that he's talking to, they're saved. 
They're already secure in heaven. They're justified. Okay, so the only issue is whether they're going to get rewards or not. You can lose your rewards. You cannot lose heaven. So he's talking about two different things there. Second, verse 42 makes it clear that every action, no matter how insignificant, receives a reward. Now, if heaven was the reward, then we'd fall into the error of salvation by works, justification uh, by our works, receiving heaven by our works. And the scripture is quite clear that we receive that by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay? Our works do not contribute to heaven, but they do contribute to our rewards. Again, that proves that they're two different things. Matthew 16, 27. Then he will reward each one according to his works. Not heaven, according to your works, but it's a reward according to your works. Quite different things. Third, Christ is not leveling all rewards into one indistinguishable reward. He distinguishes various kinds of reward. Righteous man's reward, prophet's reward, disciple's reward. We've already talked about an evangelist's reward, a martyr's reward. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So there is no socialism here. What you do on earth limits for all eternity what you are going to be having and being able to do in heaven. You won't be able to get a government up there to redistribute wealth and to kind of take people who have a lot of rewards. That's really not fair. Let's take some of those rewards and let's give it to this guy who skated through life. No, there will not be any redistribution of rewards. This is something that God says is individually given. If you fail to witness, you're not going to get a witness's uh, reward. If you fail to care for your children, you won't get the reward on that. Every detail of our lives has the potential for reward, but also has the potential for losing a reward. Now, that is a tremendous motivator. And then fourth, going to the broader context of the whole Bible, the word reward occurs 101 times and consistently that word is used to give an incentive to people that their, their actions in life make a difference. Their actions in life make a difference. On the spirit, socialistic spiritual interpretation, it makes no difference what actions you have on earth because you're going to have exactly the same thing in heaven. You're going to get heaven. That is your reward. And so it's very demotivating, just like uh, the former Soviet Union or China. Uh, people have been, uh, not been very highly motivated to excellence because of an equality of honor, equality of ward, lowers the quality of the work down to an equal and mediocre output is basically what it amounts to. Uh, when people work spiritually in a socialistic wor worldview, I think all motivation for service is removed. And so if you take these verses seriously, it'll drive you to serve the Lord. The sluggard's going to get very little, the industrious person is going to be laying up treasures in heaven. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3, and I know I'm taking a long time on this, but it is an area that some of you guys have struggled with, so we're going to try to hit this hard. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's begin reading at verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. And the previous verses indicate they're one by God's grace. But I want you to notice that Paul does not jump to the conclusion because we're one in salvation, we're one by God's grace, that there is therefore an absolute equality uh, when it comes to uh, rewards. It's not dissolving unique contributions. He goes on and says, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. 
And so there's, there's distinctions here. This is not socialism, where everybody gets rewarded the same, even though one person, he sacrificed hugely, and the other person skated through life. Now look at verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now the foundation deals with our salvation. Verse 15, I think, makes that clear. And you cannot contribute anything to that foundation. You have not put one pebble, not one little speck of cement into that foundation. It's all Jesus Christ, and that's one of the reasons why salvation is equal. Okay, we equally deserve hell, we equally deserve heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the works that are wrought by God's grace once we are saved is something that we do have a part in, and he likens that to building on the foundation. He says you can contribute to that, and again, it's by grace, but you can contribute. Uh, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. And notice it's each one's work. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, he'll get into heaven, he'll be saved, but he's not going to have uh, things that other people have. So when some of you guys get to heaven, uh, some of you may get far less recognition, far less honor, far less reward, far less treasures in heaven, uh, far less responsibilities in heaven than other people that you know. And it's because of what you have done while you're here on earth. For all of eternity, it's going to affect what kind of dominion that you can take. Now, you'll be happy in heaven. Everybody's going to be happy in heaven. But you're still not going to have what you could have had if you had labored for the Lord. You were out and out for Jesus. And so John warns us to be careful that we not lose our rewards in 2 John 8. And it's actually hinted at in Matthew chapter 10, a passage we read, uh, that um, uh, you know, if you give a, a cup of cold water in my name, you will by no means lose your reward, implies that if you don't do that, you could lose a reward. But Second John 8, very clear, you can lose your reward. And then he tells you how you can achieve the full reward. Okay, and so there are degrees. We can, through pride, lose out on some rewards. There may be people who have the ability to lay up treasures in heaven because they are sharing in what I do. And they're going to have far more reward than I do because maybe pride has robbed me of some of my reward because of the public uh, access that I have. And I, I fight against pride. But uh, uh, th these are things we got to struggle through in our minds. How does God uh, deal with our dominion in eternity? And so basically what he's saying in this chapter, yes, the costs are great of witnessing, but he says, you know, compared to the eternal weight of glory that you're going to be laying up, it's insignificant. It's nothing. Yeah, you are going to be so thrilled that you made the costs that uh, throughout eternity you will be rejoicing. Point three, the, the passage says not only that the prophet and the righteous man and the person who gives a cup of cold water receive rewards, it says when you receive a prophet and a righteous man, you're going to share in that righteous man's reward. When you help an evangelist, you're going to share in his reward. Now, people might think, well, is that socialism? No, that's not socialism. Um, you're sharing in his reward because you're investing in his ministry. You know, when you invest in a company, you get shares in that company, right? You're going to get some benefits from that company. Well, this gives even more reason to be involved. Even though you may not be gifted, as gifted as other people, 
and maybe you don't have the money or you don't have the position or the kind of business or whatever, by ministering to people who have those gifts, you can share in the rewards that they're going to get throughout all of eternity. Uh, for example, when you host uh, a study in your home or you use your home as hospitality to reach out to the community and some other people are coming along, you don't really have the gifts to do that. By being a host, you not only get your own reward there, you're going to share in that evangelist reward. Now, to me, this is such an exciting aspect. This is one of the things that makes uh, Kathy and I just love giving to missionaries and to giving to different ministries because not only is it uh, a way in which we can express our love to the Lord, but we can actually share in those people's eternal rewards as well. It's a cool, a cool uh, 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 promise that God gives to us. Remember the widow's might? She almost had nothing to invest. Almost nothing. Jesus said she gave more than all of the Pharisees put together. And when you, maybe with less gifts, invest in the lives of those who have more gifts, you could potentially end up with more rewards and treasures in heaven than the very people that you're sharing with, okay? Because you're so out and out for the Lord. So that's a further motivation to, 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 to minister to the Lord. And I think it's a beautiful balance between the one and the many group dynamics and individual uh, dynamics. Fourth and last motivator, we'll just be very quick on this one. If we're guaranteed rewards and eternal significance to what we do, it implies that we're on the winning side, right? Okay. And I think this brings a fitting conclusion to a whole chapter on, on warfare, language that he's talking about. When you suffer because you've been witnessing, um, he, is, he is saying that your suffering is not in vain. It is contributing to the final victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has ordained, has guaranteed. Last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. So uh, uh, Christ has no intention of lo losing the battle. And uh, just as a soldier would be very demotivated uh, if uh, he was going to fight knowing he was going to lose, he's willing to lay down his life for his country. But, you know, a Vietnam type of situation or Korea type of situation where, okay, you're fighting, you're but there's no goal here to win this battle. That's a very demotivating thing. You're not going to have that with Christ. He is guaranteeing he is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Of the increase of his kingdom of peace, there will be no end. Now, let me give you four action items to take home. First of all, just to sum up this whole series that we've been going through on evangelism, be willing to witness, even if it's uncomfortable. Be willing to witness, even if it's uh, uh, got some cost and some shame of people putting you down and things like that, realizing the reward is well worth it. So that's the first take home. Just be willing to witness. Second, Plan to receive someone into, in, in Christ's name in this coming week. Because verse 40 says that if you receive someone in Christ's name, you'll receive your reward. So receive somebody. It might be receiving an elder into your home. It might be tucking your little kid into bed. It might be making a phone call to somebody to cheer them up. But receive somebody in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, very consciously say, Lord, I want to serve you when I call this person. I'm doing this for you. Third, give something sacrificial to that person. 
And it uh, doesn't have to be uh, extravagant. It could be giving your time. Your children can do this. You know, you can pick up the table for mom and you can be telling the Lord, Lord, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing it for mom too, but I'm doing it for you. So uh, give something sacrificial to them. And then fourth, thank God after you have done this, thank God for that because of his union with you, that he has enabled you to lay up treasures in heaven. He didn't have to do it that way. Uh, he could have just said, no, you're going to do it and everything's going to be equal. But thank him that his grace was given to you in such a way that your labors are significant. Give him the glory for anything that you have done. I'm convinced when you get to heaven, you're going to be constantly thinking, you know, I don't deserve these rewards. I don't deserve these things because it was Christ who enabled me to be able to do this ministry anyway. And you're going to, as it were, be casting your crowns before the Lord. But you can start casting your crowns before Christ by thanking him that these rewards come of his grace. And uh, I think if you do those four things, it'll really make a difference in the ministries that you engage in in this coming week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the rewards that you have laid up for those who uh, uh, lay down their lives for you, give up all that uh, we can never outgive you. Uh, Father, we uh, desire not to do this in a self-seeking way, but we desire, Father, that uh, our lives would receive your well done. We want to please you. Uh, we want you more than the gifts. And uh, so I pray that our hearts would not be even so wrapped up in the rewards of heaven that we miss the seeking of you. But Father, uh, we thank you that you super add all of these rewards and gifts and, and benefits uh, in the life to come. And Father, we do not want to reject that. We do not want to have a false humility that denies these gifts. Instead, we just want to say all glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. And so we pray that as we close out the service and singing, that uh, our hearts would be joyful, you would be pleased, your smile of approval would be upon us as we lay our all at your feet. In Christ's name, amen.